From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, and I am sitting in for Tony today. It's a pleasure to be with you. As a reminder, you can find this program at TonyPerkins.com. You can also download the Stand Firm app on the App Store and at Google Play. I encourage you to do that. Get all the updates that you need from FRC, as well as every Washington Watch program. Today, the breaking news, which you may be aware of, the jury in the Derek Chauvin trial has reached a verdict. We thought we may had may have seen a verdict by now. We have not yet received a verdict. We are monitoring that and we'll let you know as soon as we know. But we do have a number of uh, related topics and perhaps a uh, providential guest at the top of our program, uh, civil rights uh, leader Clarence Henderson, that we're going to start off with today. Later in the program, though, before we get to Mr. Henderson, uh, we are going to also talk about whether the U.S. government is and should be funding genocide in China. Representative Bob Good will also join us to talk about some legislation that makes it easier for the marijuana industry to do business in the United States. Good idea, bad idea. Why did Representative Good vote against that? At the end of the program, we're going to talk to Owen Strahan, who has recently written a book about Christians and wokeness, and we're going to discuss critical race theory, and probably as well, by then, assuming we have a verdict, we will discuss also uh, the Derek Chauvin trial. But uh, to start off this program today, Clarence Henderson is a civil rights leader. He's the president of the Federal Frederick Douglass Foundation in the state of North Carolina. He is also, he was also involved in sit-ins, famous sit-ins at Woolworth's Lunch Counter in Greensboro, North Carolina in 1960. One of the many peaceful resistances that led to the, civil, the reforms of the 1960s, ultimately the Civil Rights Act and so much of the progress that we have seen today. Mr. Henderson, welcome to Washington Watch. I am delighted to be here. How are you doing today? I am well, and we are. It is an honor to speak with you, and we are really grateful for your time today. And it is a. It's an important moment, and we are now. And I actually am just hearing in my ears, and I don't know if you've heard this yet. And so I'll tell you, uh, the the Derek Chauvin trial jury has found him guilty on all three charges. I don't know if you knew this news. Do no, you I know didn't. this? What's no, your reaction to that? My reaction is this. We are a nation of laws, and each person has a right uh, to go before the court uh, for whatever judgment is going to be. And that's the only thing that we can hope for is justice according to the law. Whether or not I agree with it, uh, uh, are not uh, is is a totally different thing uh, because uh, we have to look at when I looked at the, the George Floyd thing, it did not happen in a vacuum. There were things that preceded that. There was contributory uh, situations on uh, his side, George Floyd's side, as well as uh, 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 what happened to the police officer. But again, the only thing we can hope for is that. There is a trial by jury, and uh, we have to stop going, uh, uh, having uh, our trials uh, in the public in the public square. 
Well, I, I would agree with that for sure. Uh, we do want the justice system to be able to work its its course rather than have mob justice, which isn't good uh, for anyone, though it is swifter. It is not always more accurate. And when the justice system is allowed to work, that benefits all of us because in the event that any of us are in front of a jury, we want that jury to consider uh, – us and what we have done, not what someone else has done and in not other contexts. Now, with in, in light of this uh, verdict found guilty on all three charges, there's been concern all week about what the response to the verdict is going to be. What do you expect now? Um, what I expect now is the unexpected. Uh, will uh, the people that are out in the streets be satisfied with the verdict? Uh or will they just continue to uh, go against uh, the laws of this country? You see, I participated in a peaceful movement uh, on more more than one occasion, actually. And the whole uh, what makes that work is nonviolence. We had a right to peaceably assemble, but when it turns to violence, uh, uh, order has to be put in place. And what has happened in this country is that uh, since last year, sometime we've had this. Uh, what I call anarchy uh, uh, against the people, the common citizens of America, whereby that there's a form of intimidation by going out and starting out calling a riot, and then the next thing you know, it turns into something else totally different. So I'm in hopes that America will come to its senses and realize that as a nation of laws, we have to uh, self-discipline ourselves uh, and live according to the law. Now, I'm going to assume you have heard the comments from Representative Maxine Waters, which got some attention. I'm going to go ahead and play these, uh, play this, uh, these remarks in the event that you haven't heard them. And then I want to give you a chance to respond and see what you think. Well, we've got to stay on the street, uh, and we've got to get more active. We've got to get more confrontational. We've got to make sure that they, they know that we need business. Given your history, what do you think of the idea that uh, of Representative Waters saying we need to get more active, we need to get more confrontational? Is that helpful? It is a shame and a disgrace that this lady sits in the halls of Congress and espouses what she's just espoused. And she has a history of it. This is not by accident. Uh, she is inciting violence. And I would expect that she would be one that was saying that we need to have peace no matter what, because um, she has been elected to represent the people. And most people in the United States want peace. They want justice to be done, but they also want to be able to live in a country where we can sit down, discuss things, and look at uh, what happens in in a uh, um uh, in our courtroom and be able to, to deal with those situations, not by violence, making sure that it's, uh, the laws are just. I think most Americans would agree with what you've just expressed. There is this balancing act because we know that things are not perfect and our justice system is imperfect. But if we take matters into our own hands, it becomes worse than if we have a, a justice system, though imperfect, that is allowed to work. But if you would reflect for a moment, um, because you were involved in the civil rights movement in the 1960s, you're an observer and you're involved in what's happening today as well. How would you compare the climate of the 1960s on the race issues to what America is dealing with today? 
Uh, these are not uh, peaceful protests, as some believe, uh, because when we did peaceful protests, the whole idea was that we would be peaceful no matter what, that we would not ad adhere to violence no matter what. And when I see quote-unquote peaceful protesters out there getting right in the face of police officers who are there actually to protect them, and the police officer is simply standing there and get right in their face, shake their finger in his face, and expect that um, uh, that uh, they, they are not inciting things, uh, trying to provoke things themselves. And so the idea is not to provoke, but we have what are, what are known as constitutional laws, and we must live by those laws if we're going to live, continue to remain and live in a free society. Do you expect there to be violence in Minneapolis or in other cities tonight as a result of this verdict? Well, it, it seems to me that there are those that are in this country that have decided that they're going to uh, mold this country the way that they want it, and they said by any means necessary, and it means including violence. Uh, they are trying to tear down uh, the system that we have in America right now, the justice system, and what they're trying to do is is, is to provoke, to intimidate, uh, to do whatever is necessary. You see, here's what I understand, which is most important. My rights end where yours begin. And until we understand that, uh, we are in a very dangerous and precarious situation in this country right now because the safety of our citizens out here, just the everyday citizens, is at stake right now where you've seen with these riots before. People have lost businesses. People have lost lives. And the very idea that you would go out, come, out, come out and say that because someone got killed and you're causing more people to die than actually this one person or five people or whatever the number is uh, to have gotten killed. Do you believe that the demonstrations we've seen even this week leading up to this verdict are spontaneous or are they orchestrated in some way? They are orchestrated. They are those that are sitting waiting to have a reason to come out and start uh, violence and mayhem. If you look at what's happening you will have people out there for all various reasons, but you've got some people that are out here that are leading these things. And if these are, uh, would be peaceful protests, what does looting and going into people's uh, places of business and stealing uh, um, uh, various uh, uh, items out of these stores and burning places down? What does that have to? What does that have to do with peaceful protests? These are not peaceful protests, and people need to understand the difference between the two. I think that's a fair point, but I'm going to go ahead and, and take that one step further and, and see if I can get you to even ask, answer your own question there. Who is it that benefits from these disruptions in our cities? Well, most recently, we got two organizations specifically that have uh, reaped benefits of it, and as, as uh, Black Lives Matter and Antifa, and uh, they are Marxist organizations. I'm a person that I call it like I see it. Um, and what is happening with these organizations, they are, they are profiteering. If there was not a profit in uh, these riots, uh, what they're doing right now, you wouldn't hear so much about it. You wouldn't see so much of it. Uh, and you you look at it, that they're, they're trying to leverage things in their favor, not only 
from a point of view of, of taking over, but from a point of view of uh, mon- from a, a point of view of monetary value. What is your advice at this point, given the tensions, given the moment that we're in? What do you advise the average American to do to help move the country past the conflict to a place where we're we're getting along with people? We have to go back to the reason this country was founded, which means that we need to know the history of this country which means we need to understand that violence begets violence. We need to understand that there is an order of things in this country. We have three branches of government to make sure it balances itself out. It's something like what you said before. There's a balance to all of this. And if we don't live according to that, I would rather be right in the minority than wrong in the majority. And so what we have to look at is we have to go back at to what this country was found to be, even though it's an imperfect country, and live according to that because we have people coming here because they're looking for the opportunity in America. They're not coming here because they're trying to get away from the very thing that that we are causing to happen in this country right now, the violence, the mayhem, and and, and, uh, council culture, and attacking people's character. That's what people are coming here uh, trying to get away from. And we in this country don't seem to recognize that we live in the greatest country in the world. Clarence Henderson, thank you so much for your time. You are a real American hero. We greatly appreciate you being with us today. I appreciate it, too, and you have a blessed day. Coming up, in in the House of Representatives, there's an effort to stop the Biden administration from funding the U.N. Population Fund. We're going to talk about that on the other side of the break. What is Roe versus Wade and what did it do? The Supreme Court's 1973 decision ruled that abortion is protected under the U.S. Constitution, striking down many state abortion restrictions and severely limiting the extent to which states could write their own abortion laws. The Supreme Court's limitations on states to legislate abortion restrictions depends on the trimester of a pregnancy. For instance, Roe disallows states from restricting abortions in the first trimester, but allows some restrictions on abortions in the third trimester. What Roe doesn't do is require states to have any restrictions. Abortion through all nine months of pregnancy is the default, unless Congress or the individual states pass laws restricting it. That leaves a lot of room for unrestricted abortions. For a full explanation of how Roe v. Wade liberalized abortion laws, go to frc.org explainer. That's frc.org explainer. After the recent wave of media censorship, are you struggling to find a conservative, relevant, and Christian platform where you can find out what's really going on? Here at Family Research Council, we believe that Americans have a right to exercise their freedom of speech and share their stories with the world. If you're ready to hear the facts that the left doesn't want you to know about, then head over to frcblog.com to check out our latest blog posts. We cover a wide range of issues you and your family care about, all written by our policy, government affairs, and biblical worldview experts. We discuss topics that other media platforms won't, like changes in pro-life policy, current events that affect Christians internationally, sexuality from a biblical perspective, and insights into the bigger picture of the shift in American culture. To stay up to date on current news related to faith, family, and freedom, visit frcblog.com. That's frcblog.com. Would you like to spend more time in God's Word? 
Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible with their Stand on the Word Bible Reading Plan. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading with an intentional focus of diving deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues. By studying the Bible, we can see the grandeur of God unfold throughout the past. This reading plan takes you through the Bible as events happen in history. Laying out the scripture every day in an engaging manner, it is key to helping us stay grounded in God's truth. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. Start reading today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, and I am sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you are with us. Polling has shown that a strong majority of Americans don't want their taxpayer dollars funding abortion overseas. And that's true regardless of how they feel about abortion. Despite this, President Biden revoked the Mexico City policy shortly after taking office and is moving to restore funding to the U.N. Population Fund, which is linked to coercive abortion and sterilization, especially in China. Not only that, the Biden administration is also calling for the U.S. to back pay the funds withheld during the Trump administration. In response to the president's actions, U.S. Representative Chip Roy from Texas introduced the No Taxpayer Funding for the United Nations Population Fund Act last Tuesday. And he was joined by more than 40 of his colleagues in doing so. With me now to talk about this legislation is Ariel Del Turco, Assistant Director of the Center for Religious Liberty at Family Research Council. Ariel co-authored an article on this issue that was published yesterday in The Federalist. Ariel, welcome to the program. Thanks nice for joining me. Nice to be with you, Joseph. Now, for those who do not know, tell us what the UN Population Fund is and why America funding it is controversial. Yeah, so the United Nations Population Fund, it's basically a large international organization dedicated to promoting family planning around the globe. And specifically in China, um, they've been linked to the use of coercive abortion and coercive sterilizations, as you said. So that's clearly a problem for American right. taxpayers. Do we have any idea how much money China gets for this? Uh, they get quite a lot from the United Nations Population Fund, specifically that goes to uh, reproductive issues. I think it's around 600000 so it's a lot of money. Okay. Now, why is this question coming up now? What makes the question of funding for China so special today? Yeah, this issue is actually more important than ever before because in January, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo issued an a genocide determination on the Chinese government, saying they're perpetrating an ongoing genocide against the Uyghur people, specifically through their coercive sterilization practices in the Xinjiang region where the Uyghur people live. So that's a direct attack on their entire population, and it's one of the um, definitions of genocide. Now, that genocide determination was made by Secretary Pompeo, I believe, in the last day of the Trump administration. That's Is that right? right? Yes. 
Has the the Biden administration indicated agreement with that? Yes. So they affirm the genocide determination. They agree that a genocide is happening in China. So I would really encourage them that if we believe a genocide is happening in China, we should not be tying our money in any way to it. And you make a fair point. That seems to make sense. So what is their response to this? Why are they trying to fund this if they agree that a genocide is taking place. Well, that's really what we're trying to draw attention to, is just the hypocrisy. If you want to um, punish China for genocide, don't fund it. I would love to see the Biden administration conduct a thorough review of what exactly the U.N. Population Fund is doing in China before they reinstate money to it. And we know that they want to do this. We We know they want to give more money than ever before to the United Nations Population Fund. What kind of I know that the Chinese government has gotten a lot of attention lately because of their mistreatment of the Uyghurs. Is this connected? Is it a separate human rights abuse? Is this the issue? Uh, This is the most egregious issue. I mean, it's literally genocide. And a lot of legal scholars agree that that's the case. So this is just the pinnacle of China's human rights issues. But it points to many more. Okay, now. China, a spokesperson for China's foreign ministry earlier today called the reports of crimes against humanity against the Uyghurs uh, lies and false information, I guess the Chinese version of fake news. Do we know how they want the world to view their relationship with the Uyghurs? Well, they want us to think everything in Xinjiang is fine. I mean, the region's under a total lockdown, but really that's fine. About their forced sterilization practices, they've called it, oh, we're liberating the Uyghur people from being baby makers. I mean, this is egregious and shameless stuff, but we know the truth. Well, they have a history of this. They've had a, they had... They, they, they still don't have a one-child policy. That was revoked, correct? Uh, to a two-child. To a two-child. So, but they have a long history of kind of population control measures for the population generally. And are there other examples of them taking a specific ethnic group within China and trying to reduce that population? Uh, this is going to be the most, the foremost example of it. But as you said, they've learned from doing this for decades, from oppressing all of their people for decades, exactly how to do this. And they're very effective and brutal in their measures. Um, well, do you think that uh, is this an indication generally that the Biden administration is going to be somewhat lenient on China with respect to these human rights abuses? Well, I hope not. It's really just been around 100 days for the Biden administration, which feels like a long time. But we're really still waiting to see their foreign policy flesh out. And they've made some good statements. The new Secretary of State, Blinken, has made some good statements regarding China and human rights. But really, we need to hold them to it. Domestically, there's been a lot of chatter about defunding Planned Parenthood. That's very um, that's a, a hot topic here. We've been debating that for Decades, generations probably even at this point. Do you think there's a parallel to be made? Because people argue we shouldn't be funding Planned Parenthood because of what they do, even if you're not directly funding an abortion. Do you think there's a parallel there there to China and the idea that we shouldn't be giving them any money because of what they do with it? Yeah, well, the thing is that money is fungible. So if we're giving money to Planned Parenthood and say it's not going to abortion, it still allows other money to be used to abortion. And it's the same thing here. We can say we're giving money to the United Nations Population Fund, which is which has uh, programs in China, but they're not funding abortions. 
But when the UNFPA funds programs in China, it allows the Chinese government to direct their funds uh, to fund really oppressive and coercive abortions and sterilizations. Do you have a prediction for how this is going to end? Are, are we going to successfully get this money cut off from the Chinese? I think it's going to be a battle, but I hope we're up to it. This is one worth fighting for. I definitely agree with you there, and I know our, our listeners do as well. Anything that people can be doing to help that happen? Uh, pray and also uh, contact your representatives and congressmen. Support Chip Roy's bill to block funds to the UNFPA. That's exactly right. And so, Ariel, thank you so much for your time being with us today. And for the rest of you, we're going to be coming back. Uh, we're going to talk about more legislation in Congress funding perhaps the wrong things. The U.S. Representatives House of Representatives passed legislation yesterday that would grant the marijuana industry direct access to banking. What does this mean for America? What does it mean for the marijuana industry and perhaps your kids as well? I'll talk with Congressman Bob Good about this after the break. We'll see you then. Where do you get your news? Do you have confidence you're getting the full truth? If you want to stay up to date on conservative news and are looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged, then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent radio programs, social media posts, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. Stay informed with a trusted source. Again, search Stand Firm to download the Stand Firm app. As the political and cultural landscape of our nation has shifted in a concerning direction, it is so important for Christians to be equipped with biblical answers for the difficult questions of our time. That is why Family Research Council created our Biblical Worldview series. With the political left changing definitions to favor their narrative and to push their agenda, at times it can be hard to decipher what is true. That is why we must hold to the truth of the Bible, which stands the test of time. It holds the truth that does not change. Become equipped to stand firm in the face of cultural and political storms with FRC's Biblical Worldview series. This series dives deep into what the Bible says about some of the most crucial issues of our day. You'll learn what the Bible teaches on abortion, same-sex marriage, the separation of church and state, religious freedom, and the age-old question, should Christians be involved in politics? To access this series, visit frc.org worldview. That's frc.org worldview. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Fackholm, sitting in for Tony today. Glad that you have joined us. Yesterday, the U.S. House of Representatives passed legislation that would grant the marijuana industry direct access to banking by allowing financial institutions to accept federally illegally to accept federally illegal proceeds from the sale of marijuana. Excuse me. The Safe Banking Act passed by a 321 to 101 vote, receiving support from all Democrats, as well as more than half the Republicans in the House. 
Among those who stood against the legislation was Congressman Bob Good from Virginia, who gave a speech from the House floor in strong opposition to the bill, which now heads to the Senate. He joins me now. Congressman, welcome back to Washington Watch. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me, Joseph. Well, we are glad to have you. Tell us, why did you choose to oppose the Safe Banking Act when so many of your colleagues wanted to support it? You know, I sent a letter to the governor of Virginia a few weeks back asking him not to sign the bill, making Virginia the 16th state in the country to legalize uh, marijuana. And with all the challenges facing our country, our border crisis, the out-of-control spending, the assault on the family, the assault on our fiscal uh, situation as a nation, you know, here we have the Congress deciding that what they need to do is to make uh, access to the financial industry uh, to the uh, to, to, the, to the marijuana industry to have access to our financial system, and which really will be a tool used to launder uh, finances for actually hard drugs. And so I was proud to stand against that. You know, marijuana is a dangerous drug. It's a still a Schedule One substance, and we don't need to be facilitating more use of that drug. Tell us why is it that the marijuana industry does not have access to the banking industry now, and what the argument for changing that is. Well, it, there's only, it's only uh, legal in 16 of the 50 states. And again, the federal government, the DEA, is still considered a Schedule One substance, which means it has no medical purpose. It's subject to abuse because it's a recreational addictive drug, and it's a dangerous drug to be used. And so the industry has not had access to the financial system. They've basically been a cash industry to this point, and now it will allow them to operate like any other uh, business might be able to operate. But again, that will allow the, the, the same individuals who are involved with the marijuana industry are involved in the harder drug drug industry and allow them to actually launder money through our financial system. Who is it that's pushing this in Congress? Well, I'm disappointed that we uh, the Republicans basically split on it. I wish that we would have had a majority, if not all Republicans, to vote against it. We certainly expect the Democrat Party to be behind something like this. But there are those uh, in the financial industry who are in favor of it, and there's there's businesses who are in favor of it. And you've got the, uh, I, I guess, the uh, the faction of the party that is more uh, the uh, the uh, uh, libertarian, you know, who don't have the moral concerns. But, you know, when you look at the breakdown of our family and of our youth, marijuana is a dangerous drug. And it affects young developing brains even more than it affects adults. It's estimated that 30 percent of young people have used marijuana, have experimented with marijuana, 30 percent of, of high schoolers. Uh, it was used by 12 million people, 12 million teenagers in, in, in the last year, 2019, where we have stats for that. Uh, it does impair folks. You know, it's not like alcohol where you can have it in moderation. The purpose of marijuana is to get high and it does impair folks. It affects, again, brain activity. Uh, there's lots of concerns with that drug. Now, I could tell just by talking to you about it that you care about this and the fact that you actually not only voted against it, but you bothered to speak against it on the House floor. Tell us what you think the problem is with mainstreaming not only marijuana as a drug, but as an industry as well. Well, when you reduce the stigma and you allow greater access to it, you're going to have more young people have access to it, more young people experiment with it. Alcohol, for example, is illegal for under 21, but we know that young people do experiment with and have access to alcohol because they can get it easily. When we reduce the stigma for marijuana, you're going to have more young people trying it, more will become addicted to it, more will become, you know, will abuse it, and uh, certainly is a drug that's abused by nature by using it anyway, because again, the purpose of it is to get high, the purpose of it is to be impaired, and it's the number one illicit drug that causes auto accidents. And there's all kinds of issues with the use of the drug. You look at the states that have legalized it and the addiction that comes with it, the dependency, the homelessness, 
uh, the states are devastated by that. And people who in Colorado, for example, businesses have told me they can't fire, they can't hire folks because they can't pass the drug test. And then the police, the law enforcement will tell you that those who profited off illegal marijuana sales, now they move and, and reintensify their efforts to harder drugs uh, because they can't make money off of marijuana anymore. And this marijuana is not the marijuana of 20, 25 years ago. It's five times more potent with the THC levels than it was 25 years ago. So it is a dangerous drug. And the last thing we need to do is be encouraging more young people to try it based on our actions, to experiment with it based on our actions, and to reduce the stigma so that more people in our country and our society become dependent on this drug. Many of your colleagues are from states in which marijuana has been legalized. Is there any connection to that uh, that determines their willingness to support or oppose this legislation? What kind of feedback are you getting from the state level? Well, I haven't done a study to determine you know, what the propensity is to support it on the Republican side based on whether or not it's legal in your state or not. But I've had friends from Colorado tell me that the problems that it's caused in that state, Republican friends from Colorado, that they have, you know, they were already against it when they saw what it's done to their state. They said it's, it's become a place where it's prevalent. It's everywhere. And it's really harmed their state economically. It's harmed their state culturally. It's harmed the, their young people. And they're, they're very concerned about it in Colorado. What do you expect to happen? Do you have any feedback about what the future of this in the Senate is going to be? Well, it's, as you know, it has passed the House before, and here it is passing the House again. I certainly hope that the Senate will will not pass it. Uh, it should not get to 60 votes, I would hope. I hope that you wouldn't have 10 Republicans who would vote for it. So hopefully it will die in the House, in the Senate. Representative Good, thank you so much for joining us on Washington Watch, and thank you for your vigilance on this issue. Really appreciate it. Thank you again, Joseph. Good to be with you. We will continue to track this because it is an important issue. We do not want to mainstream the drug industry in the United States financial system any more than it is today. Um, Who in your family do you want to be taking or who in your community do you want to be taking more drugs? The answer to that question is sometimes helpful as we think about this issue. Coming up, we're going to talk about why the Biden administration is trying to push critical race theory in the education system after the break. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day every day. Listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins to get honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world. Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday by tuning into Washington Watch on the American Family Radio Network Bot Radio, the KTLW Radio Network, and independent Christian radio stations across the country. Or listen to the show when it works for you by visiting TonyPerkins.com. Since the Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade in 1973, over 60 million people are now missing from our country due to legalized abortion. Public opinion, our knowledge of law, and scientific advancements demonstrate that Roe should by no means be considered settled law. Roe is an abomination in our country's history. And it's time for the horrendous practice of legalized abortion to end. To learn more about the legal, historical, and cultural reasons to overturn Roe v. Wade, go to frc.org slash Roe. The Equality Act sounds like good legislation and something that ought to have bipartisan support, but it doesn't. Why? Because the Equality Act, paradoxically, would spur inequality. It is Trojan horse legislation that would hinder equality and would massively overhaul our federal civil rights framework. The stated purpose of the bill is to prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex, gender identity, and sexual orientation. The real effect of this bill would not be to eliminate discrimination, but to erase the freedom to hold a different opinion. The Equality Act would mandate government-imposed inequality, 
by requiring acceptance of a particular ideology about sexual ethics, while leaving no room for legitimate public debate. Simply put, the Equality Act mandates an anti-life, anti-family, and anti-faith agenda throughout federal law and would be a disaster for all Americans. To learn more about the inequality of the Equality Act, visit frc.org slash Equality Act. Since June of 2015, over 12,000 Christians have been killed in Nigeria. This violence has reached a point at which experts are warning of a progressive genocide specifically targeting Christians across Africa's largest and most economically powerful nation. Yet this violence often goes unreported in the media, and if reported, is seriously downplayed. To learn more about what is actually taking place in Nigeria, along with other countries where Christians face persecution, visit frc.org slash Nigeria. Did you know that Planned Parenthood is the biggest abortion supplier in the U.S.? According to Planned Parenthood's most recent annual report, it committed 354,871 abortions in fiscal year 2019, up by over 9,000 abortions since 2018. According to these numbers, Planned Parenthood aborted 972 babies every single day. To learn more about what Planned Parenthood is really doing, visit frc.org slash Planned Parenthood Facts. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. On this program, we've highlighted a number of cases that have popped up in various parts of the country where wokeism has been making its way into public classrooms. Well, the Biden administration is looking now to pave the way for wokeism to infiltrate schools across the United States. Yesterday, the Department of Education published a proposed new rule that gives priority for American history and civics grants to, quote, projects that incorporate racially, ethnically, culturally, and linguistically diverse perspectives. The rule goes on to cite and praise the New York Times landmark 1619 project, as well as the work of critical race theorist Kendi as leading examples. What will this mean for public schools in America? We are going to, I believe, and I hope bring on Owen Strahan to have this conversation with us in just a moment. And in fact, I am now getting uh, signs that he is here. So, Mr. Strahan, and I'm going to finish this. Dr. Owen Strahan is the author of the forthcoming book, Christianity and Wokeness. He's also the associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Theological Seminary. Dr. Strahan, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much, Joseph. Great to be with you today. Well, we're glad to have you. And the breaking news of the day, I want to get into the main topic. But since we uh, scheduled you, we have some important news. What is your quick reaction? Because it is related to the conversation we're going to have to the jury's verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial. Yeah, um, I haven't been following the trial uh, on a kind of uh, hour by hour basis, but um, I am saddened as some are, to see that uh, it appears that, at the very least, there was great pressure put on uh, the jurors by sitting Congress people. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I don't, I can't comment extensively on this, uh, this major cultural happening. But from what I could tell of what Derek Chauvin did as, as facts emerged and the case was heard and came out into public, it did not seem to me that Derek Chauvin had done something uh, to kill George Floyd. Uh, 
I'm not on the jury. I didn't hear everything that, that the jury heard. Uh, I do know that America was very much polarized over the verdict. And I would say this, um, I, I think we're not in a good place when people are saying that we need a certain verdict to be reached in order for our society to be in a good place. So I, I have some real concerns and I'm praying for justice and peace and true hope for our country. That's that's what I do know for sure to pray for. I think you make a really good point that we're not in a good place if the public is lobbying for a particular verdict. And in fact, there's a sense of a threat in in the event that that verdict is not reached. Um, we have we've been at that moment in our in our past. And it's not good when when there is a sense from the community that we're going to convict this person, regardless of what the facts are. Why do you think we are at that moment? Well, I think we're at that point uh, in part because of wokeness, uh, because uh, a substantial portion of our society is convinced that oppression is happening everywhere, that um, what Chauvin uh, did in handling George Floyd led to his death, effectively killed him. And that is uh, an instance, the argument goes, of policemen enacting brutality against people of color. Um, in this particular case, there are facts that have to be carefully weighed and considered. And honestly, again, to repeat this, I wasn't on the jury. I wasn't sitting in the courtroom. From what I can tell, it was a complex matter. It appears that fentanyl contributed at some level to George Floyd's death. Uh, but we just need to note that our society is, I would say, uh, very concerningly prepped for revolution on these kind of counts if it doesn't get the verdict it wants. And uh, that that is j just, Joseph, to be hanging on individual verdicts like this is itself a sign of real civilizational peril. So um, the days are evil, and we need to pray very much for God to work in our midst. You've written a book that's soon to be released called Christianity and Wokeness. How would you, how do you define what wokeness is? Wokeness is, uh, according to the Oxford Dictionary and other major sources, the state of being alert uh, or awakened to the nature of racial inequity and injustice in this country or in a country. And it is therefore not only being aware that our our order systemically is shot through with racism, but then one is um, conscious of the need to work for racial justice in a society. And so when you're woke, you have that twofold commitment. You, you have a commitment to see racial injustice everywhere because racism is everywhere, the argument goes. And therefore, you have the commitment to work for racial justice everywhere, which basically involves a, a fundamental reordering of American life and society. What you need to understand in fundamental terms is that wokeness is built upon a purely Marxist foundation. Marx arguing for the, the identity of oppressors and then the oppressed, and then Marx calling for individuals in a society to spot where that oppression is occurring. And uh, Marx used that pairing very effectively to mobilize normal people in, in Europe and elsewhere to fight against established order, what someone like me as a theologian would call creation order. It's not that there isn't sin in public life, 
but God has ordained institutions for human flourishing. Yet Marx encourages us to see God-ordained institutions like the family, the church, and the state as oppressive of individuals. He applied that economically in the 19th century, but it's being applied racially, so to speak, in the 21st century. Now, what you refer to is a component of critical race theory, and you've spoken a lot about that, but we're, we're here today to talk in part about the rule from the Department of Education, the proposed rule. Now, what is your response to the proposed rule, which says that they would like to prioritize, quote, projects that incorporate racially, ethnically, culturally, and linguistically diverse perspectives? What's your reaction to that? My reaction is first that my understanding of American history as it has been practiced and taught is that it does incorporate, it should incorporate uh, diverse voices and experiences and, and moments in history. But what we need to understand is that the Biden Department of Education is pursuing its own unique vision of, of the same. In other words, we've been pursuing the recognition of diversity in American public life and in the teaching of history specifically for some time. But uh, what what this curriculum is going to do is basically enshrine critical race theory and its attendant ideas into law. And that is going to mean that, for example, a good number of our school children in public schools are going to be taught that whiteness is akin to uh, white supremacy White supremacy is the fundamental norm of our society, and so our society needs to be remade. If the, bar, if the Biden Department of Education follows through on woke ideas, on woke ideology, that is what millions and millions and millions of schoolchildren will hear. And that is to say that our children will be taught not a body of uh, thought that defeats racism at its root, but actually a body of thought that sadly foments racism. I don't know if it's possible to quantify this, but to what degree do you think these ideas have already penetrated the government school system? Because we hear examples about this all the time, and now we see that the Department of Education wants to formally commend this to government schools. But how much room is there to grow in this area, do you think? And I don't mean grow in a positive sense, of course, but, but how, how many schools are not teaching this already? That's a good question, Joseph. I'm sure that many are, but I think we need to see uh, that not only do ideas have consequences, but elections have consequences, to update Richard Weaver, if I can. And so, yes, as you're rightly pointing out, there's all sorts of woke penetration of public life already. Uh, part of the reason is because woke ideology in the form of critical race theory and what's called intersectionality is the norm now on many uh, American college campuses. So those students who have graduated are taking that education into teaching with them. But because uh, President Biden uh, was put into office, uh, he is pursuing his agenda. And his agenda is firmly and fixedly a woke agenda that has no break on it. And so what we should recognize is that we are about to witness a woke tidal wave unlike anything we have yet seen uh, in American public life. Uh, this is going to force Christians and others, uh, citizens of conscience, religious people of different kinds, uh, whether believers in the Lord Jesus Christ or not, into very uncomfortable places. This is also going to accelerate, I believe, the trend 
uh, among Christians, my own group, evangelical Christians, and embracing homeschooling and classical Christian school and co-op alternatives. And, and I'll cross the line from analyst to activist here, Joseph, and just say that trend needs to continue. Those trends need to pick up steam because uh, if you have assumed as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ that you can entrust uh, 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 your children to public schooling, you should assume that no longer. Yeah. Well, as the parent of four children who are enthusiastically involved in their classical Christian school, I, I of course, agree with you on that. I don't believe that it is... A coincidental that this proposed rule comes out just before the 100th day of the Biden administration, because the the 100 day mark is kind of a landmark at which you identify your priorities and, and prove to those who got you elected that they had a good investment in getting you elected. Now, I also am inclined to think that that Joe Biden at his core doesn't necessarily care about wokeness in the way that the uh, 20 something social justice warrior does in America. But for those who have given him this priority, and he's happy to carry that, what do they stand to benefit? What do they stand to gain by pushing this as aggressively as they are within the government school system? What we need to understand is that Marxist thought, again, this is what is called cultural Marxism, does not seek a gentle realignment of society. Marxist thought, as it has basically always been practiced in one society and one country after another, seeks a demolition of the existing social order, and then a new reconstruction of that social order along Marxist lines. So I don't know the degree to which President Biden is bought into this ideology per se, but I can tell you that folks on the left absolutely want a demolition of America as it currently exists and has existed. They do not want uh, a free speech-driven country. Uh, they don't want uh, a naked public square where all ideas are, are bandied about and debated. Uh, they, they don't want lots of different perspectives represented in a classroom or, or public life, for example. This is what we call hard postmodernism. Um, Joseph, the era of soft postmodernism is over. That era where everybody just believes what they want to believe and it's all relative and there's no absolute truth, that's still out there, yes. But in terms of the leading edge of leftism, it's now hard postmodernity that is driving it. And that means that though there is no absolute and objective truth, the left is acting as if there, there is and as if wokeness codifies that body of thought. And so it is coming. It is absolutely gunning uh, for the hearts and minds of the American people. We're not engaged in a struggle against flesh and blood as Christians, but wow, should we be alert to what is happening. How quickly the tides have changed. They spent they spent generations fighting the idea that there is objective truth, and now they consider themselves the guardians of it and the assassins, uh, figuratively, to this point, of anyone who would suggest uh, that, that, that they are wrong about that. Now, you've written this book, Christianity and Wokeness. What do you think the church is doing? What? How are we responding to date, and what should we be doing? Yeah, I have written this book. Uh, Tony Perkins was very gracious to endorse it. Ken Ham, Vody Bauckham Jr., John MacArthur comes out in July. So in three months, it's not out yet. But in Christianity and Wokeness, Joseph, uh, what I try to do is I try to show people what wokeness is because lots of people are turning on ESPN or they're firing up Pinterest or their favorite website for news. 
And they're not seeking out talk about racial equity and these sorts of things, social justice, but it's hitting them. It's hitting them whether they know what it is or not. And tons of people are confused. And this body of thought, this ideology is having a tremendously adverse effect on our society and reaching into the church as well. So I wrote this book, Christianity and Wokeness, to first identify what wokeness is as a system and then to give the Christian and gospel alternative in Christ. Uh, I pray that the book can have some small part in helping people along both those lines and helping them make sense of what is transpiring, uh, what is shaking down in our society right now, and then ultimately finding hope in, in the one force Joseph, that actually unites people. It's not ideology. It's not hatred. It's not resentment. It's not class division. It's not racial division that's going to unite us. This is only going to further divide us. Uh, what we're seeing play out in our society, what actually unites is, is the good news of Jesus Christ, Christ crucified and resurrected for us in, in trusting in Christ and coming to faith in Christ and joining local churches as members. Then we become part of the, the, the body of Christ and, and the local expression of that body. And then we really and truly are working for and finding ourselves in uh, a unity that the world uh, cannot defeat. That's what I'm most after in this text. Well, we are looking forward to reading this because we need, uh, above all, in many cases, clarity. Um, we have limited time. One final question in uh, 30 seconds. Are you optimistic or are you pessimistic about the future? Uh, I have no idea what is going to happen in America. If these trends continue and, and, and good voices are, are defeated as they have been in previous days, then I, I don't know that much good is coming America's way. And yet I am eternally optimistic about the fate uh, of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is where my hope reposes, not in anything earthly in this world, but only in Christ uh, and the advancement of his gospel. That is worth hoping in. Owen Strahan, professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Theological Seminary. We greatly appreciate your time. We look forward to speaking with you again. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. And for the rest of you, we look forward to seeing you next time as well on Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.